let me just um, echo Miguel's welcome uh, to everyone to Manchester. It's really exciting, I think, for us to host this event, but also to have something up north um, that, that we can talk about these important pressing issues. Um, <clears throat> so my name is Jenna Mittelmeyer. I'm here with my colleague Sophie Wilmer. Uh, we are both lecturers here um, in the University of Manchester on the MA Education International Programme. And what we'll be talking about today is looking at what the policy discourses are around in, um, international students in the UK, and we'll be kind of mapping that to what the research shows are international students' actual experiences. Uh, so we'll, we'll argue that there's uh, a lack of overlap between those two things there. Um, sorry. Uh, so what we'll do is give a brief overview of some of the policies related to international students first, then we're going to focus on two primary areas that are key within those policies, um, the students' development of friendships on campus, um, and then their experiences within um, the classroom and, and formal education settings. And then at the end, we'll, we'll provide what we think are some implications for, for universities on a, on a macro level um, and, and um, practitioners, students, teachers. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do a quick overview of the UK national policy in this area. Um, but can I just check, how many of you feel like you know, have a fairly good grip on what the last 20 years of national policy has been? Quick, quick hand up, fairly good. Okay, I'll race through then and not bore you to tears with it. So um, I say 20 years because that's when the um, that's when Tony Blair launched his Prime Minister's Initiative uh, in 1999. This was basically, it was literally the Prime Minister's Initiative to recruit international students. Something of a blunt instrument, lots of targets set. Nominally very successful, but it was fundamentally a marketing and recruitment campaign, so very aspirational, the best you can be. Um, that was refined slightly after some criticism about um, the blunt toolness of it to the second iteration, PMI2, which was the Initiative for International Education. The focus during this period was much more... Whoa, did I touch the screen? Um, the focus in this period was much more on student experiences um, and put more emphasis on curriculum although, as we'll discuss, still not an awful lot in terms of the actual pragmatics of teaching. This was supposed to run until 2011, um, scuppered largely by the election of the coalition government, which really introduced um, a very hostile environment towards immigration and categorised international students as immigrants, meaning that um, visa rights and post-study work in particular changed. 2013, um, the industrial strategy for education was launched, um, and this was associated with the Britain is Great marketing campaign. If you've come in through airports recently, you might have seen this in terms of shopping is great and music is great, Britain. Um, it's a very nationalistic um, campaign with the use of the Union Jack and often is signalled with very traditional buildings and traditional motifs of higher education like labs and libraries um, and that's still current today although they have branched out and they're looking at much more modern university buildings and some that are not even Oxbridge or Russell Group. <gasps> um, and then of course uh, a couple of weeks ago um, we saw the latest iteration of the international uh, of the industrial strategy um, this is now housed with the Department of Education, so there's a little bit of a softening of tone, trying to add a few months onto post-study work rights, um, 
but the emphasis is, with all of these initiatives, still very much on revenue, income and student numbers as being a signal for success and as being a signal for how the UK is uh, promoting its soft power. Um, so what we can see is that there are four dominant rationales which have gone throughout this period. Um, biggest one is obviously the income, um, but also uh, looking at the influence and saying we should recruit international students because it creates political um, influence through soft power with international students. Um, we're going to unpack that a little bit more later, so just remember to phrase soft power for now. There's also a lot about the quality of experience of education. So this is what really is important for the idea of internationalisation of curriculum, saying that recruiting international students automatically, in essence, internationalises the classroom and makes the learning experiences intercultural. Immigration has acted as kind of a counter-narrative, um, saying, well, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't recruit international students because they're immigrants, and obviously immigration is bad. <laughs> Um, all of this is within the framework of obtaining national competitive advantage for the UK. So the first area we wanted to look at in terms of student experience is friendship. So national policy does actually talk about friendship, but it positions it as very instrumental, basically as being a tool for the UK to gain in soft power and influence. So Tony Blair literally says, relations are strengthened between our peoples and countries at many different levels. So arguing that the personal relationships and friendships that are formed then will help the UK further its business and political interests later on. So what that assumes is that the, those friendships they're targeting are the ones between home and international students. It doesn't talk at all about relationships between international students of different countries or of international students from the same country who may be making friendships that they wouldn't have made had they stayed in their own country. Um, and in the latest industrial strategy, we can see the same narrative going on. So the flow of international students helps to build goodwill towards the UK. This relies on the, on the assumption that international students will have a positive experience while they're in the UK, and that that's what generates goodwill. Obviously, if students don't have a positive experience, they're not going to be very happy with the UK. <laughs> so I think when we look at the research about international students' experiences in reality, it's not necessarily lining up with these policy assumptions in ways that I think the, the UK government would perhaps like. Um, so there's a variety of research that shows that many international students have um, not close ties, not very many close ties with home students. That's research that's been done within the UK, but also in other traditional receiving countries like the US, Canada, or Australia. Um, there's been research that demonstrates, for example, as few as one third of international students have a single um, person from the, the host country that they would consider a friend. Uh, so when we're thinking about these policy initiatives, that's, that's an immediate barrier to these assumptions um, within UK policy. Um, <clears throat> I think we also have to think about experiences of bias and prejudice. Uh, so we had a paper a few weeks ago that was published in Studies in Higher Education that was looking at those experiences of students with um, implicit and also in, in some instances very explicit racism, um, comments being made from home students. So if the assumption is they come to the UK and have a really lovely experience, um, what might be happening in reality is actually the opposite. Um, we may have some students who are leaving the UK with a very negative experience because of these instances of bias and racism. Um, as Sylvie mentioned, the policies aren't really thinking about the diversity of those friendships as well. 
uh, that many international students have developed sustained friendships with peers from the same country. Um, and as well, not really considering that cohort of international students um, as a community itself, uh, so that often international students are developing sustained ties with peers from other countries. Um, so not necessarily that linear relationship between, um, between international students and home students, but actually developing sustained ties throughout their lives to students who are from other countries. And so I don't think we can assume that simplicity. Um, <coughs> As well, there's sort of this um, perceived on, on, the, on the behalf of international students, I think there's a question mark, because I think we can question how much this is reality, um, of a lack of interest or indifference from home students. Uh, so that's a, a barrier and a challenge, I think, at many institutions, is encouraging home students to have that interest to develop um, those sustained ties with international students. So again, that, that policy narrative is rel relatively linear. International students come to the UK, they make British friends, they go home. Um, but what we're actually seeing in, in, in research and in practice, any of you that work with international <coughs> students, is that experience is more nuanced and more complex. Um, this is a little smaller screen than I hope, so I'll, I'll explain this um, verbally as well. But this is an example from a UK classroom, um, some research that I did using social network analysis. Um, it's basically a survey-based um, research method where you ask students, you know, who do you consider to be your friends within, within a classroom? Um, and then you can uh, demonstrate it visually like this. Um, so it, it looks a little scary, but it's essentially each shape is one person, each line is a stated relationship. Um, between, between those students. So this is a classroom at the University of Surrey, a master's level classroom. Um, <coughs> these, the shapes in terms of the color and the shape are the country from which students are from. So what we can see here, if you can see this, is we have a huge group over here, primarily students from the same country who are very close in terms of friendships. Um, these happen to be Chinese international students. Um, this group here with the light blue, those are our British students who are all kind of grouped together, not very many sustained ties with international students, and kind of around the periphery we have these other clusterings of international students from other countries. Um, so I think this is just an example of one classroom, but it's the kind of things that we're seeing in classrooms around the country, um, where, where these patterns of, of co-national friendships um, are, 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 are happening quite, quite frequently. Um, <coughs> in saying that, I think it's really important to, to say that those friendships with peers from the same country are not a deficit. I think that's something we see often within the literature, we see within the discourse about international students, almost this crisis narrative of why are they not making friends with, with people from, from the home country. Um, but those, those friendships with peers from the same country are very valuable to international students. Um, they can be very personally fulfilling. Uh, there's plenty of research that shows having sustained connections with peers from the same country when you're living abroad uh, can help with those transitions, whether that's emotional, academic, psychological. Um, having that support can, can be exceptionally valuable. Um, <coughs> some of the work that I have done has also looked at how those sustained friendships between peers from the same country can actually act as a platform for helping students um, engage with the local community, enjoy cultural events in ways that feels more comfortable than maybe if they were just doing it by themselves. Yeah, did you want to add that? Yeah, I yeah. think that the reason why it's often framed within the deficit narrative is because if we go back to what I was saying about the rationales in framing recruiting international students in the interests of the UK, co-national friendships don't do anything 
to foster the UK's interests. So from the perspective of national policy, yes, this absolutely is a deficit because we don't get anything out of it. Students do. Yeah, no, I think just, just adding to that, that we also have to think about the, the benefits to, to students, as Sylvie says. I mean, students who come to study abroad, develop friendships um, or connections from peers with their home country, those are, are likely more valuable and sustainable if they decide to go back to their home country in terms of networking um, and developing career prospects. So, so I think that, that bit is missing from the narrative. Um, but just an illustration of that um, in some of the work I, I did uh, about Chinese international students' transition experiences, time and time again, um, they talked about how home students, uh, their, their relationships with them were interesting um, and, and a valuable part of the experience. But ultimately, you know, when they're homesick or when they have bad days, when they're feeling stressed, it's those peers from the same country that were able to provide um, more valuable support systems for them. So moving up from the individual personal level to the sort of classroom or education level, what policy is saying about intercultural education is that that's one of the reasons we should recruit international students is to encourage inter intercultural education largely for the benefit of home students. Um, so it's this narrative that international students offer a window on the world. So this is superficially a very positive narrative saying that we want international diversity because it enriches the classroom space, everyone can learn from each other and let's all hug. And, um, again we can see that continuing into the current narrative so domestic and international students value the international classroom experiences they get in the UK institutions. And universities often use this as a promotional strategy. So those photographs of this beautifully diverse student body all sitting together on the grass and having a lovely time in the sun <coughs> that happens so often, especially in Manchester. Um, but what we see is the reality is that students are often siloed within courses. Um, so we can almost think about student diaspora happening on a subject level, particularly in business schools, um, but not exclusively. Our own MA education is almost entirely Chinese students, which is wonderful in a lot of ways. It's not necessarily the international experience that is advertised on the national level and on the institutional level. Um, so this is just an illustration of what it looks like on a national level. So you can see the biggest spike in international students is in business and administration, um, but also in engineering and technology. So within subjects, we're not necessarily getting that international learning experience that you might see on an institutional level if you just look at the statistics. Um, and then, of course, just because we've got high international numbers doesn't mean they're all coming equally balanced from the same from different countries. Um, students from China outstrip students from all the other major ten sending countries. Um, so that is not necessarily reflected in the policy narratives. Mm. But I think there's this assumption um, within curriculum internationalization that we have international students, and maybe we diversify our materials a little bit, stick them in a room together, and somehow magically it creates this meaningful intercultural experience. Um, but we know from, from research recently that that is certainly not the case. Um, there's things like Harrison and Peacock have a nice term of passive xenophobia. Uh, from home students and that's this notion where it's not explicit racism or xenophobia but this feeling of indifference not wanting to work with international students or maybe feeling that working with international students on group projects for example might harm um, a home students grades so these sort of feelings of indifference and, and not a lack of interest of, of working with one another um, on intercultural concepts um, 
I think a major question we have to ask as well is do students want to be representatives of their country? And in my own research, it shows that many students don't. They don't feel comfortable with having that burden of being asked to represent their country, explain their country um, to the benefit of their peers. So I think that's a, a major thing we need to be quite critical about. Um, in my research, this was particularly from students who weren't part of those large cohorts. So for example, students who were the only representative from their country in their program, um, suddenly being asked to have this burden of explaining and, 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 and supporting their peers' learning. Um, as well, students from the Global South or students from developing countries felt um, a sense of, of maybe uh, of feeling like uh, the rhetoric about their countries was not positive when they had these discussions. And so again, thinking about that human element, do students want to be put in that position? Um, and, and my argument is many of them don't. Um, <coughs> another thing thinking about is stereotypes. Um, right? So when we're talking about intercultural um, materials, for example, how well is the lecturer trained about that particular context? How well do they know the culture? How well do they know the history? Um, to what extent are they um, speaking about stereotypes that may be offensive to some students or, or presenting information incorrectly. Uh, so I think in this sense we have to take a step back and say well, we can't just stick international students in a room and expect they know how to work with one another and we can't just diversify our materials and expect that to be everyone happy. Uh, we really need to be more purposeful with our internationalization and really thinking critically about the impacts that that has um, within the classrooms and on, on students' experiences. So one way that we can think about um, this idea of essentially using students as educational resources is that we're asking them to subsidise the international curriculum. We're asking them to do that work of creating internationalised learning environments and an international, a curriculum that is international in terms of its content. Um, what this narrative also does, and I think, uh, is to treat students as agents who are acted upon rather than as agents who may have choices and a voice in how the classroom environment is shaped. So if they are, for example, as uncomfortable with being that representative of their student culture, that they have the authority and the agency to reject that and to ask for the classroom to be shaped in a different way. And I think some of what we see, which can be um, behaviours which are frustrating for teachers, such as silence, absence, they are actually ways of opting out from this a framework and a structure which is pedagogically... Um, not, it, it's pedagogically unsound in that it doesn't recognise the tensions which are foisted on international students. Um, all, all, all of this relies on nation-centred assumptions of difference and diversity. So the idea that two people, because they come from different countries, therefore necessarily have different experiences, different perspectives and different bodies of knowledge. If I can use myself and Miguel as examples, um, Miguel is originally from the Philippines. Um, I'm British by origin, but we actually have a lot more in common than I would have in common with any random British person because we share different internationalised experiences. We've operated in the same spheres and we have many of the same perspectives. In what sense are we then necessarily different because we have different passports? Only in a racist sense, effectively. Um, it's, it's a culturally essentialist model that I think if we're going to engage in a critical model of internationalisation, we need to be very cautious of. 
Mm. I think just adding to that, we have a tendency to speak about international students and home students as a binary, but we know that diversity is more complex than that. Mm. Um, I, an example from my own life, I mean, when I was a PhD student, I was an international student. Uh, I, I got married in the middle and changed my visa status. Suddenly I was no longer international. I was a home student, but nothing changed about my identity or who I was or any, anything about the diversity of my background. And so I think we have to be very careful with those categories and, and how we label um, international students' life experiences and home students' experiences. And this is where um, different, you can see that different policy discourses and different policy narratives shape the way that we think about things because when we talk about diversity in the context of home students, we value a whole range of different aspects. We value diversity of age, of work experience, um, disabilities, uh, you know, neurologically atypical students. Those things are never mentioned. Religious background is the other one. Those things are not mentioned in reference to international students. It is solely reliant on this internationalised model of diversity. Um, I would argue because that internationalization, that internationalism conveys some form of cultural capital which other dimensions of diversity don't. So what does that mean in terms of implications for teaching? I think we've probably already highlighted a number. Um, I think we're raising a lot of challenges and questions. We don't necessarily have all the answers. Hopefully some of the other presentations today might have a few suggestions and pointers. Um, but essentially what I think we're saying is that institutions and countries rely on signs and symbols of national diversity, but that doesn't necessarily translate into curriculum or pedagogic practice. Um, Curricular internationalisation, it's not easy, it's not simple. We can't just chuck people in the space, as Jenna was saying, and assume it will happen automatically or magically. It has to be purposeful, and it, will need to take, it takes an intentional effort of redesigning pedagogy and practices. Deficit narratives are really persistent and toxic, and they're very, very hard to fight. They're shaped by policy discourses nationally, but also institutionally. I think one of the things that we can all do in terms of critical internationalisation is resist some of these deficit discourses and when people say, oh, well, students aren't engaging because they're international students, we can stop and say, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean by that? And would you dare to say that if we were talking about British students who were, for example, the AME? That's Jenna's point, which I'm stealing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an excellent point. Um, so I think what I would like to advocate for, um, what we would like to advocate for, is an idea of ethical internationalisation with students as active partners, critical individuals who we can acknowledge are socially embedded in different groups which are not structured exclusively by the desires of the British government um, and who are not necessarily representatives or we should not be treating as representatives of a static national culture. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, just in conclusion, some things to take away. Um, I think Sylvia and I both feel that these national policies overly simplify the experiences of international students. They assume that that experience is linear. linear. It's more likely spherical or circular, or, I don't know, something like this. Um, that the, they're more nuanced and complex than, than what national policies tend to talk about them as. Um, <coughs> we feel that there's a lack of data about um, these power relationships, the soft power that we talked about, um, this lack of information, um, sort of um, um, empirical evidence about about how to talk about these discourses in, in a proper way um, and that these policy narratives need to be critically examined so we shouldn't take them at face value and again assume that that numbers of international students equals internationalization is something we need to be more purposeful and more critical about do you want to add anything to that? Nope.
Thanks, Sylvie. Thanks, Jenna. That's been a great start to the morning. Um, policy.